The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hi, welcome. My guest today is Kenton Hall. He's a writer, actor, and musician. He's originally from Canada, we're, we're forgiven for that. He's got readings, well, uh, lots of things he does. He um, He's my guest today, and he's going to talk about some of the things he does. I recently listened to one of his classic uh, audio adaptations, London After Midnight, and I really enjoyed it. Hi. Yeah, no, no, that's great. Thank you. I like to start with you enjoying something. That's a, <laughs> that's a good beginning. Um, what inspired you to do all this? Because it's not something you get up one morning and say, oh, I must do this. Uh, yeah. I, I, so, like, I've been a writer um, my whole life. That was always the the dream job was to write. And along the way, I've kind of picked up other skills and sort of directing and acting and uh, music was obviously always a big part of it as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's a mixture of things. Uh, uh, during the pandemic, it, it became a, a whole new window opened in the audio drama space because suddenly you had a lot of very talented actors who were locked at home, but had potentially sort of home recording studios. So you suddenly had access to people you might not have had access to before. Um, and I had worked um, in audio drama for sort of a little bit. And then I got offered a show called Getting Better, The Fight for the NHS, which was for Audible. And I had worked for the people um, concerned a couple of times on sort of prose projects. And I came in to co-write co-write the script on that and that was a show that starred Rod Gilbert, Mark Gatiss, uh, Catherine Drysdale and it was all uh, just a great great cast and it was really well received um, and that kind of springboarded into doing more and more audio drama and London After Midnight was a project that um, my co-director Jack Bowman had sort of brought to our attention my co-writer Lance Roger asked um, as something because it was in the public domain um, and because it had been lost for so long. London After Midnight, the original Lon Chaney, Todd Browning film, uh, was released in 1927, but the last known copy of it uh, disappeared in an MGM fire in 1965. So it had become this iconic, from the few photographs that exist of it, it had become this iconic lost movie. And Lon Chaney's look, the man in the beaver hat, um, had become this sort of horror icon that inspired endless sort of movies since. So it, it felt like it was a really good opportunity to tell a story that people really hadn't been able to experience in full for years, for decades. And also something that sort of horror fans might be interested in. So we set about adapting it for audio. Uh, there was the occasional wag who said you're adapting a silent film for audio, uh, but that was kind of the uh, the joy of it was having to approach from a completely different angle and how to take what would have been a very visual story because it was a silent film and make it something that's really sort of sang in the audio space. 
but that's the challenge of any job. That's what I like is if something has an interesting challenge, particularly if you're working on properties that you haven't created, um, making it your own becomes such a big part of it. But I'm I I I enjoy working on all sorts of different. I write I write prose. I write audio drama. I write film and television. Um, Part of it is who's paying me at any given moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, it does help. Yeah, I, yeah. Right. I'm a freelancer. There's, there's, it's plays fair and foul. There's times where there's lots of work, and there's times where there's no work. So I, I do grasp at anything that looks like it might be interesting, but also might, you know, pay the rent that month. Um, but on after midnight was a joy because I, I, I got to be in from the very beginning and also co-directed it with Jack and produced it with Jack and Lance. So it was a real labor of love and, you know, then it's going to take a while to like, really promote it and get it out there. But, and it's a slow burn, but um, so far we've won seven best audio podcasts at sort of film festivals around the world. Uh, the seventh one just came in today. So people are hearing it. It's now it's just getting them to part with their filthy lucre and, and buy the damn thing. So we can make the, so we can make the next thing as much as anything else, because we have plans. Well, the beauty of public domain is because a lot of small stuff is coming into the public domain. And recently we had um, uh, Paddington Bear, Bear um, and now Winnie the Pooh uh, horror film, didn't we? Which I, I quite yes. enjoyed. I quite enjoyed the, the silliness of it all. Well, the blood and it, honey, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, think, I, think, I think that was part of the reason why it worked. I, I'm expecting a, a Mickey Mouse sort of horror film to come out sooner or later. Yeah, Steamboat, Steamboat Willie. Steamboat yeah. Willie, The Revenge, is bound to land it, It's got to come out, isn't it? It's Because there's not a lot Disney can do about it, technically, because it's out there. They can they yeah. squashed everything else, but they can't squash that. Yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things that's important is if you are going to work in like with those public domain properties is actually not half-assing it, because it's so easy to throw something out there in the first instance, particularly with sort of like Winnie the Pooh or, or Steamboat Willie, where the idea to subvert it into something more adult is kind of the first thing that everybody thinks about. But I think those things, it's easy to kind of get the shock value. But if you have got these excellent stories that you want to sort of revisit, then do something interesting with them, for God's sake. You know, it's don't don't just go for the cheap uh, schlocky um, attempt because it, it only has a limited shelf life and the shock only lasts so long. You know, write it well. Um, I mean, one of the things with, with London After Midnight is that it's this iconic thing and it's this great story, but we, we changed things because there were elements of it that didn't work. There were elements of it that we didn't like what we had to find was the spirit of it and what made it London after midnight and approach it from there but that's the case with any adaptation um I recently did another project um which was a licensed sequel to a Doctor Who a Doctor Who serial called Greatest Show in the Galaxy and we were and we were doing an audio an audio sequel to that as a musical with with all the surviving original cast from the original episode including Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldrin um and that was an interesting one because I loved I loved that story. Um, but if we made a sequel that was just a retread of what the original story had been, it would have been boring. So we we had the blessing of the, ori the original writer. And obviously he licensed, 
his characters to um, AUK Studios who made it. And I had to take it off in my own direction, but still be true to the characters that he created and create more characters of my own. And Chris Gard, who played Bellboy in it, had written the songs for it. And so we made that into a, a, again, thankfully, knock on all the wood, uh, very well received so far. Um, and Stephen, Stephen very kindly has told me how much he liked it. So it was a breather, a sigh of relief, and a writer that I really respected. And I'd run off with his characters. And then I wrote uh, the, the novelization of that as well. So, and we've just done the novelization of London After Midnight. Uh, the book comes out shortly, which is novel version the, the script that we wrote for the audio plus production diaries from the making of the audio so the biggest thing with anything that's sort of working at a kind of indie level is that you have to making it is one thing and that's a joy but hard work and costs a lot of money but then promoting it so it's great to come on and speak to you like like this because Literally, it's it's door to door to a certain extent. You don't have the marketing budget of a major studio. Um, sometimes you don't feel like you have the marketing budget of affording a sandwich. But <laughs> if you're proud, if you're proud of the work that you've done, you have to just grit your teeth and get on with telling people about it and have no shame in telling people about it as well. well. You think about it. There's lots of independent films that you see now on Netflix and the likes of Amazon that were, were like you back then. They were small films that didn't get the promo but they yeah. then they get brought out by the likes of netflix and everything and of course that nobody's going to say no because if someone said come along and said oh kenton we're gonna netflix said we're gonna like would you like we'd like to buy the rights to the uh da -da -da. you're not gonna say oh no i'm not gonna do that you, no you, well my first feature as a writer director it's exactly the same it, it was tiny tiny budget i think it cost about thirty thousand pounds and it's on netflix now and yeah they did they didn't pay an extraordinary amount for it but you know i, I get a couple hundred quid every quarter <laughs> but it's it's out there and the work lives on and you know that was a film that uh, was beloved by many hated by a couple but i'm still very proud of the work we did because we we made a very ambitious sort of family comedy for next to no money with um and you know there's lots of it i see like okay i can see that we spent thirty thousand pounds on but there was a lot of people that really loved that movie and and i'm still proud of what we accomplished the fact that we managed to make a film get it into cinemas briefly and get it onto netflix one day it'll make its money back um but... yeah, but I, i'd like the small films because i think the trouble is now all the major films have gone down the same trope of Oh, let's make another sequel. Yeah, We've got absolutely. To do, another sequel. Yeah, and I, 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 I think you know, um, I think there's definitely people that have sort of been spoiled by endless CGI and battles. And don't get me wrong, I love a blockbuster if it's made well and it's and it's witty. Um, I like a I like a Marvel film when it's a good one. Um, but you know, the there has to be a space for people trying things, noble failures, uh, you know, indie projects. And, and I've come across people that like will judge a film because it's low budget um, or because it has the flaws of a low budget film. And it's, you know, it's one of those things 
where you know on an on a low budget indie you've got no you've got no budget for reshooting or you make the best film you can with the resources that you have and hope that a good script carries the day um and with a dozen summers i know all of its flaws and the people that don't like it and point them out to me i'm like who are you telling i know <laughs> you know it was it was a film that we we made against the wire um to the point of me having a nervous breakdown but we did it and that that, that can never be taken away so we we did it we accomplished it and whatever people think of it i'm proud of it and i'm proud of everyone concerned with it um i'm a bit like that with my podcast because i i like to do um tv scripts and horror stories and all that yeah. i pick and choose which shows i do all i do is do a straightforward script read i don't bother doing voices if i don't need mm -hmm. to because i don't think i just think i can't do justice to the to an old comedy that everybody knows an old film that somebody knows i've been doing lately the carry-on films oh yeah and it's great to read back the humor because obviously infamy that, infamy they've all got an infamy yeah that kind of humor is going because it's got to the people too frightened to push the barriers now i like comedy that pushes barriers yeah, I think I mean I think I think there are still people out there pushing barriers. I think people get too hung up on the idea that you can't say things. It's not true. It's absolute nonsense that you can't say things. Of course you can say things. But you know, in this day and age, it's just, you know, we're learning to be to think a little harder and be kinder and that's a good thing. Uh, but I think people get snarled off in the idea that people are being censored and they're not. All these people that have been supposedly cancelled are out there making a living. You know, they, they just sometimes people push back and i think it's good for an audience to push back i i think we carry on the reason why there's not been a huge amount of pushback on that is by and large it's not punching down there's some sexist things that are in there which obviously we've grown as a society but for the most part everyone's in on the joke and um i think that's why it lasts when things like you know, thank God Bernard Manning have, you know, long gone by the wayside because that was punching down. It was, it was aiming yeah. jokes at people who... Yeah, the comedians, who, yeah, back in yeah. the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like, but, you know, there's, there's still, still room for edgy comedy, but, you know, you, you pick your targets. The world is full of ridiculous, insane cruel stupid things that deserve comedy to aim some well-earned missiles at it so i i mean i i come from a comedy background i like edgy comedy i just i don't what i don't like as i get older increasingly is people say things purely to shock purely to get a rise out of the audience because it's just lazy writing and that's a, that's outside of the moral implications of my, my biggest issue with it is just not a very good joke if you're just trying to get, if you're just trying to make people go, oh, it's not a good joke. And, you know, if you really, if you have something important to say about an edgy subject, write a good joke about it. You know, if you write a good joke about it, no one minds. Or the people who do mind can't defend their, their uh, objection to it. Just make it, make it a good joke and make it have a purpose. That's all I said. And also, I know you But said, I love a carry-on film. Uh, you mentioned here that you obviously have bipolar disorder. Now, obviously, I, I've got mental health issues, so I know it's sometimes life can be a little bit like a uh, a rodeo, as they would say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one minute um, you're on the horse, the next minute you're not down the horse. You don't want to get sometimes, out of the horse. 
and sometimes you think you are the horse. You know, it's yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've lived with bipolar disorder all my life. I'm, I'm fortunate that in the last six or seven years, they found finally found a sort of combination of meds that seem to keep me more or less level, um, and also finally convinced me that I should take them in the first place. Uh, but one of the one of my pieces of work that I'm absolutely proudest of, and I hope you know, I really would like to reach a wider audience, is a book called Bisection, which is um, a com a comic memoir about me living with bipolar and raising two twins, two twins, two twins is the normal amount of twins, raising twin daughters, um, and I did occasionally get pushed back on that for it being funny. Because people like, oh, you know, you must be serious about mental health. But it's like without comedy, I I wouldn't be here because keeping hold of my sense of humor has been the one thing that's kept me alive with the most uh, consistency. And the times when I've lost my sense of humor has been the times when the illness has threatened to overwhelm me the most. And then like the first, the first sort of like thirty-five. 40 years of my life were an absolute hellscape I mean there were some great moments and there's some wonderful people who really helped me and, and cared for me but in terms of my internal life I was in pain every day of my life mentally or physically and you know that sucks and it does something to your personality as well because it just wears you down and the last few years since I've finally kind of found a treatment regimen that works for me has been kind of a real case of rebuilding and reworking who I am as a person and who I am as a as an artist as well if that's not too horrifically pretentious because you mind if I ask a personal question yeah of course no I'm, I, I'm I was going to say how how do your two daughters cope with knowing that you do they have they seen you at your worst or do you have you told them about your worst oh they they know they they I think they were kept from the worst of it when they were younger um probably to a certain degree to my shame of the worst of it but they they certainly understand now and sort of when they were teenagers I was a lot more open with them about um what I was going through and they're they've grown to be very they're 22 now which is ludicrous because clearly I'm only 22 um and one's become a nurse who deals with uh, people with mental health issues all the time as a case for work. And one has become one followed me into drama and the arts because currently she doesn't like money. Um, but she does a lot of work and is aiming to do a lot of work post-university in raising awareness of any number of things that people are struggling with from mental health to domestic violence. And so I think my being honest with them certainly opened their eyes to the fact that behind every condition or every tragic story, there's a human being who exists beyond the confines of their illness. Because they yeah, know, be yeah, they know, they know me. They know, they know the good and bad of me, and they know that I'm not the bipolar, but it is something that has made life harder but that I've also fought very hard to do what to do the thing I love. Um, it's not always been a secure living. They know there's been times when things have been fairly desperate, but 
they also have grown up believing that if you want to do something, you can do it. It won't always be easy, but you can do it. It's not an impossibility. I think I think that's the best way to be sometimes because I don't mm. like being like I built up my podcast and my YouTube channel virtual by myself. All the followers I've got by myself and people that like yeah. it. Blah, blah, blah. And I like that because I think when people go have a go, they say, I don't like your stuff. I say, don't listen to it then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's, <laughs> there is a, if you're doing things with sincerity and honesty, there is an audience for you. And sometimes it's frustrating finding them because, you know, it's 8 billion people and you got to get to as many of them as you can to work out the few thousand that you need to be successful at what you do. And <laughs> I, I get accused sometimes of having a, a strain of North American optimism that everything is going to work out for the best, which is weird considering my life has been extremely difficult but i still do i kind of I, I, I just, there is a kernel of deep roasted canadian at the corner of my being that says you, you know what you know you keep going and you'll get there and i think the only the only people who are guaranteed not to reach their goals are those that quit that's the guarantee of failure that's the only real guarantee of failure and then you also you start to as you get older and you get more clarity you start to redefine what success is for yourself you start to realize that you know any one of the projects i do could take off in a big way that's that would be nice but success to me is that each of the projects gets as close as it can to what i intended it intended for it that i wrote it as well as i was able at that point in my career that i i made it as well as i was able where I was at at that point with the resources that I had. It's just giving everything to a project. And then whether people like it or not, I know that if I've done it well and I'm happy with it, that there are enough people like me out there that the, the, the right people will find it. It's just about me taking the time and putting in the energy to find them and direct their attention to it. And, and there's so much stuff. It's, it's like with London After Midnight, no end of sort of positive attention for it but you know you get you get a hundred people looking at it and going oh yeah that's really good like like heart heart like and then they don't buy it and people got so used that's to, the problem now isn't it that's yeah. the, the society people got, yeah. yeah people got used to having things for free and they don't realize that that the people who are making the cool things that they like are not millionaires sitting in a mansion somewhere they are people who sometimes can't pay the bills because people have used their stuff for free. It's like as a musician, like I'm on, my my albums are on Spotify and Apple Music and all those streaming services because that's just the way we do the music business works these days. But I don't make anything from that. You know, I, I make, I make peanuts, money. If, yeah, I make money if people come to a show. I make money if people buy a record or they buy a CD or they buy the digital album. And, you know, all I really ask the people is if you really like it and you can afford it, because I understand that not everyone can, then, you know, just press the purchase button. If someone can't afford it, uh, really, really can't afford it and they're struggling like me, steal it and then come to a show later. I'm fine with that. You know, it's just about... Uh, I've got, I'm a great believer in... I I like to read apps that I've been reading... as a public domain. I've been reading... Um, I'm currently reading Wind of the Willows and Treasure Island. Because obviously, Wind of the Willows, the book is completely different to the 
caricaturation of the emanation. Yeah. And the same yeah. with the book, book version of Treasure Island. But I like reading the book version because obviously you've got A, the characters are bought in depth. But I realise why in film some characters don't work and some characters will mm. because because obviously if it's only a minor character and he only comes up, pops up and then again in the book, it's just no point having him in the film if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and, it's, and there is, um, I've adapted um, things from books. I've adapted my own work into books. Um, I've written across every medium and I, and, I, and I know how differently the mediums work. I do say, like, I sometimes teach screenwriting classes and other writing classes and I do when people go oh the movie wasn't like the book and it's like yeah well a goat isn't like an artichoke you know it's the two very different things and yeah sometimes people get it wrong and they rip the heart out of it but oftentimes it's just a case of trying to make a story work for a different medium and yeah I I, I tend to prefer um books overall to everything because um like you said, you're spending more time with the characters. You're spending more time inside the characters' heads. I like words. <laughs> this is why I speak at such length. Um, and I've enjoyed, like, when I write an audio drama, I really enjoy, you know, adapting that into a novel like I did with Children of the Circus. Um, and because I got to spend more time with the characters, I got to go more in depth into what I was thinking when I was writing the script version. Um so it's for me i just i like playing in all the different pools and i i'm fortunate enough to be occasionally allowed to do so um and for people to trust me to do so but you know that there's some work out there that i'm really proud of and i just i just want it to be read you know because i think it was the divine comedy that said you know a song's not a song till it's listened to and I in the last few years I've made some things that I think are stuff that I stand behind and and think this this is the best of what I can do uh, bisection certainly the book children of the circus London after midnight um you know and if anybody's listening to this just go and buy them <laughs> go listen to them I'll, 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 them I'll include all the links you've sent me. yeah thank you I'll do that I'll write them on the, the thing because I don't mind sharing anything I'm quite happy to promote everybody because I realise in this world, as you said, we're a very small slice of the pie. Mm. I mean, that's why I'm always grateful if only one listener tunes in or that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People say, oh, yeah, there's only one listener. I said, yeah, but that one listener went to the bother listening to that whole, like, sometimes script could be half an hour long. A film script can be, if you read it, hour and a half. So someone's heard you just going on, and John said at this present moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was speaking to I was speaking to a friend of mine who's just, just finished a novel that's very personal to him. And uh, it's a very powerful book of Scott R. Jones Drill. Look out for that. And we were talking about it about you know, that scary moment when you put something out in the world and worry that it might be ignored. But you know, there's the pragmatic side we're like okay well you need you need the attention and you need the readers to get to the next thing and also to sort of justify to yourself the amount of work that went into it but at the same time on on the flip side if the work really genuinely reaches one person and they really engage with it and it really does matter to them and it becomes part of their emotional experience then that's the job that's the job really 
because all art is about connection because I don't know we talk, we talk about human connection I think sometimes we don't step back and realize how ridiculously miraculous it is because we we're tucked on the inside of these bodies looking out we judge the whole world by our prejudices everything that's happened to us everything that we've done we see it through our personality our tastes it's it, that we ever make a connection with another person is ludicrous because we're so selfish as creatures we can only see the world through our little visor and that we can meet someone and find some kind of shared experience that's that's so cool and i think we we don't really think about how amazing that is because we're so scared it's not going to happen and with art you know if i go and sit in the dark and the projector starts flickering onto the screen and i watch a movie and it makes me think about stuff in my own life or it makes me feel like there's other people out there that are like me makes me feel less alone then oh my god have they done their job you know and like that's what art is about it's a conversation it's not a monologue it's meant to, meant to be a way of reaching other people and going it's okay the universe is hard but you are not alone in this well, when you think, think about it true. art as a form of art well, uh, as a form it's been around since cavemen because they yeah. drew the images on uh, caves of the sea to say, this is, hey, look what I hunted. Look over there. It looks like yeah, an alien. It, it might not be an alien. And it it's exactly be. that. You know, when you think about some of those cave paintings where, you know, like it's, it's depicting a great hunt that's taking place. And it's someone that's had a huge life-changing emotional experience. And their first instinct is to, I want other people to know about this and experience it in some way as well. And part of that, we do all have a kind of look at me, Ma, uh, side to us. But also it's sharing what we've experienced is such a, a, a just a marvelous thing. It's, it's the best part of humanity, sharing. It's taking that is our problem most of the time. Taking, taking, taking. Sharing is a good thing. Sharing to be encouraged. Well, I, I, I like to share, as I say, because I think it's important because I'm I'm into weird and wonderful stuff. I I I I study cryptozoology and oh. I'm paranormal because I had a near-death experience. Only an audio one. But um, I, I, that's what got me into it. I recently, unfortunately, lost my wife. So then I'm dealing I'm with grief. That. But that I've learned through grief, leaving grief, the best way to do it is, what my wife always used to say, the ease bit is giving in, the hard bit is carrying on. Absolutely, yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry to hear about your wife. Um, I know from very... 20 odd years ago when I, when I was first a young musician my best friend and the bass player in our band sort of died very suddenly and it changed it changed grief changes you particularly you know your first real experience of, of of grief changes you particularly when you're just particularly in your 20s when you're just kind of coming to grips with your own mortality um but I could tell you it's even scarier so when you're getting near the 70. <laughs> I, I'm I'm 47 and it's already starting to creep back in again. Uh, so, but that, that's largely because of how how clumsy I am. It's funny how we see mortality, but that's why I think we like horror films. It's always about the zombies coming back. 
or yeah. a vampire. And I think, I think, yes, it's because deep down we all like to be immortal. But and actually, we wouldn't want to be immortal because a it'd be bloody boring. <laughs> because yeah. after a while, you've done everything. Oh, we've that book. Yeah, I've got that money. Hmm. Yeah, all of our stories about the undead are, are, you know, going back to the folklore that kind of originated it is all around fear of death, fear of what lies beyond, uh, fear of being judged for the sins we had in life. Um, and everything we do is an attempt to sort of stave off the end. But it's the one thing we all share in common is that at some point it's going to stop. Um, and when we lose people, and you know, obviously you know this far more than me, it's 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 that that reality that kind of oh, hits yeah. us. But you know, like you said, carry, carrying on is, I think, you know, it's the best thing we we do for those that we lose because you know, we carry their memory on and we carry what they it did. Inspire, it inspires you to be yourself. a better person yourself. Absolutely, yeah. That's what I think. Um, I think if, 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 the, if I was going to write a story about it, I'd try to sort of see it as a way of, like a journey down a road. And in that road, you'd be experiencing different things that you went through, all the ups and downs. And then you include it, a bit of humour, a bit of drama, because you, what you would do is mix the reality of the situation you was in. But obviously you couldn't tell it fully as it was, but you can sort of suggest it. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. I think I think the people I've lost in my life, um, whether it's sort of final loss or just people that have come in and out of your life, I think all of them have kind of inspired me to keep moving forward. And obviously with sort of the way in which bipolar works, there's been times where I really had very little interest in moving forward. Um, and it's certainly other people and their meaning in my life that has kept me here and continues to keep me here just because, you know, knowing that you have an effect on other people, knowing that you are necessary to their happiness regardless of how you're feeling at any given moment is is something to always hold on to um and it's hard to it's, it's hard to believe that people care about you as much as you care about people yes like yes, there are people yes. in my life where i know i know that i'd be absolutely devastated if anything ever happened to them but i find it I find it so difficult to remind myself that they would be devastated if anything ever happened to me. I think and, you do think that. I think and, deep down you you think that nobody cares about you. But yeah, it, it, and, in reality, it's a load of bullshit. Of course people care about you. It's just that you don't you don't hear it every day. You, you yeah, we're absolutely. very much the um self-adulation. We love it, don't we? The more we get, the yeah. more oh you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're Fantastic! You've got a beautiful body. Oh, a wonderful film. We all love it, don't we? We sort of like. What? And when someone goes, "You're an horrible bastard," you, they go, "What?" <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm quite open in 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 my book, particularly in bisection, that like I had a terrible, terrible childhood, and uh, there's been there's been plenty of times in in my life where I've been struggling with my mental health, and I've been a little bit, and I've been a little bit difficult to deal with. 
Uh, and you know, people are like, "Well, didn't your mother love you enough?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> that was the problem." We, we've that's got why, to the so screwed up. Yeah, yeah. It's like, look, I'm a writer. I'm a writer and an actor and a musician. Do you think I'd do this because I'm emotionally well balanced that I had a happy home life? Just remember <laughs> one thing: all all the best all the best comedians have had some sort of depression, alcohol, drugs. Some sort it of. It does seem you know, that way. Well, well, I think they have to, have, and they sometimes make the best actors as well. Because yeah, I think it's, comedy is the like more you drama. want. Yeah, the more you want not to be yourself, the more the easier it is to be other people. I mean, I think there are. I mean, I, I've met some people in the arts that are perfectly well balanced and have had happy lives, but I do think, I do think sometimes trauma pushes you outside of complacency. Because you, you know, God, God help me. Like if I, I would trade, I would trade all of it for like a happy life where I never worried about anything. But I'm doing what I, the best I can with what I did get, which is hopefully to share my experiences and help somebody else out somewhere down the line, um, and in the in the process, hopefully saving myself too, uh, for whatever. And it's. I think the more you concentrate on what your effect is on other people, I think the more, I think the more happiness you can gather. I, I'm not, I'm not a, ha I'm not a happy person. It's just I'm chemically unable to be happy consistently. But I, yeah, but I, that's that's Christmas movie bullshit. Yeah, and the thing is that, but as I've gotten older, it means that I do appreciate I appreciate the happy moments that I have far more, um, and, and the things that make me happy, however slippery and eel that feeling is to grasp onto, I I think I finally really appreciate those moments, and I think that's that that's essential, and that's something I think that's starting to get into my work more often. Well. Um... As usual, I have to say goodbye because I only had the free one of Zoom because I'm not bloody. Of course, yeah, it. absolutely. I am the same way. <laughs> I have yeah. a lot of. Very so thank you for meetings. this, Kent, and I've really enjoyed this interview. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I have. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for. Yeah, and me. I will promote your stuff as much as I can. I can't guarantee nothing, but no, thank you for no, giving I... me your time today, mate. Just giving me your time and uh, and also a lovely a lovely chat. It's really nice to meet you. So I'm I'm. So I'm look honest. him out, folks. Look up Kenton Hall. And please go out and buy something of his. He would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> at least he'd give him another. At least buy him a vape. Yeah, I've, I've, 